Welcome to the Molding Health Show. Our goal is to leverage the wisdom and experience of healthcare practitioners to set you on a path of self-discovery and healing. These insights, coupled with a multidisciplinary approach to each area of interest, should provide an invaluable resource to everyone looking for a better approach to health. Please note that this episode covers a mental health issue in, in rather explicit detail. If you or someone close to you recently experienced one of these conditions, this content may evoke unaddressed pain. Our intention is to inform and empower our audience, but this material is not a substitute for therapy. Please use your discretion with regards to accessing this or other material on the site that may be triggering or traumatic for you. And remember that the best strategy is to seek professional assistance for unresolved painful or traumatic experiences that you may have undergone. We have included a link in the show notes where you can be connected to one of these therapists. In this episode of the show, we speak to Debbie House about hypnotherapy and unconscious repatterning from a clinical psychologist's perspective. Debbie House, welcome to the show. So we're so glad to have you on board and talking about hypnotherapy and unconscious repatterning from a clinical psychologist's point of view. Thanks so much for doing this. Thanks, Oliver. Lovely to be here. Uh, always our pleasure. And uh, I told you just slightly just before the show, the reason I'm so excited about this episode, I mean, we did cover hypnotherapy slightly before. I think we had Jeannie Covey on uh, and we talked about that. But recently we did, we did an episode where we talked about changing the narrative. You know, so in someone's lives, you, you get stuck in this pattern and, you know, and the psychologist was talking about, you know, how do you change the, the narrative, you know, based on the life you want to live? And I thought, you know, when, when we started speaking, you know, obviously you started speaking with the team, I thought this is a really cool addition to something like that. Um, and I think just to kick it off, I mean, can you tell us what that is? Uh, what is unconscious repatterning? Thanks, yes, um, because it's a modality that addresses the unconscious mind of problems. Because if you just work consciously, you're only working with about 10% of the person so unconscious repatterning means you address a much larger part of an individual. So that goes to around 90% of an individual. I always use the analogy of an iceberg. The top of the iceberg is the conscious mind that we visually see. But the underlying 90% is where the unconscious is held. And so unconscious repatterning really works with the underlying belief systems and emotional patterns that we're often not really aware of. But when you go onto it on that level, it has more depth and more impact. And it starts to bring a lot more clarity as to the repetitive cycles that um, underlie a lot of problems. Okay. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. And, and I suppose for, I mean, I, I obviously over time, I started understanding these different ones, subconscious, unconscious, conscious, but the unconscious, do you have control over that? I mean, uh, I think is the... In the question most people would ask is, I mean, because we, we know the conscious, we say, okay, you have to change your diet, you have to do this. The unconscious, is there, is that what the repatterning is, is where you start controlling that in, in a little bit more detail? Mm, because it's um, one of the most important things that I work with for people to realize when you work with the unconscious mind, it has a different logic doesn't have the same logic that the conscious mind does. So the conscious mind is very intellectual, very logical, very rational, but the unconscious mind has the logic of a child. So it's very different. 
So when we say out of control, it means that our unconscious minds becomes reactive in a way, in the same way that a child does, which is often not very logical. So that's why there's often a split between the mind and the body, the conscious and the unconscious, where we might have good intentions on a conscious level how to shift things, but then we're out of control of actually the results that we get. And then we become reactive in a childlike manner. And that's what ideally we want to get to the point is where we can control our unconscious reactions towards moving it towards consciously responding a lot more elegantly with a lot more awareness. So often we're unaware of our unconscious reactions only until the last minute. So the aim is to eventually link the mind and the body, the conscious and the unconscious, to make that bridge so that we can become more aware each moment of our, of our reactions that are volatile or explosive or reactive. So that's the aim, is to bring the two together. That is so interesting. I can't, I can't wait to unpack this, but that is, uh, but you know, just setting the stage. Obviously, um, the other part to this to this is hypnotherapy, and I think uh, hypnotherapy has all of these. I mean, in my mind, even when I spoke to Jeannie about it, um, you know, I, when I think of hypnotherapy, I'm thinking, you know, like there was this hypnotherapist Andre. I think you know, like so. I always think, you know, he's going to control my mind and and stuff like that, but. And then when I heard like, you know, health practitioners actually use hypnotherapy, I mean, like in, I mean, in immediately, you know, the interest is like at another level, but can you tell us what is hypnotherapy? I think it's very different to hypnosis. So a lot of the stage hypnosis that we see that's commercially kind of marketed and all that, um, it's slightly different to hypnotherapy. So it's different because hypnosis is more putting kind of suggestions in and then, making you do things that, you know, kind of sometimes you might normally not do. Um, whereas hypnotherapy is actually addressing the belief systems, the patterns and reprocessing them and actually changing your belief systems on that level. So the way I work with it, I don't actually even put a person into a trance. We just bypass that and go straight to the unconscious mind via the technique that I use. So hypnosis and hypnotherapy are slightly different um, in that way where it's um, it goes beyond just suggestions when you're working with hypnotherapy you're doing more long-term in-depth um, um, applications and modifications of the unconscious program that runs because we've all got a program that we adopt in early childhood so it's basically rewiring the computer and taking out the viruses and really bringing it back to factory settings if you like where it restores the balance so we can align with our pristine sense of self. So the I, love, I love that analogy, actually. Well, I suppose coming from an IG background, but uh, I love that analogy. I've never heard that before, but it's actually I'm gonna I'm definitely gonna reuse that. I'll, I will give you uh, <laughs> I will give you a referral on it. But uh, the, yeah, it's a very cool way. I, I think for most of us, also with our, you know our smartphones, we know every time it just doesn't update. So is that another way of just taking your analogy as well? So we're just doing an update on it and it's now better. Yeah, upgrade and all of that, yeah, reboot. Okay. Ah, I love that, actually. Um, I love what you said about hypnotherapy. And, and I think that point came across quite clearly as well is around hypnosis and hypnotherapy. So I think even with myself, I'll, I won't make that mistake again um, in terms of, 
or putting the two together or at least putting a disclaimer and say hypnosis is not hypnotherapy which is it's not um the last part to setting the stage is for us to speak about a clinical psychologist can you tell us in your words or what does a clinical psychologist do um, a clinical psychologist works more with psychopathologies. It works with in-depth mental psychoses. And you can work, for example, in a mental hospital with a lot of schizophrenia. Um, so it's more more the in-depth um, mental challenges, depression, anxiety, um, as opposed to counseling or educational, which is in a slightly different field. So it's more with the um, pathologies on a much deeper level. Although you can also work with it in counseling with um, individuals, couples, um, children. So we're just more in more in depth with the actual origins of what's happening and the therapeutic applications on a deeper level. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good way of putting that. I, I like how you also went, you know, drilled it down as a, a little bit as well, because I think that's the other part, uh, you know, where you can. And you know, delve more into the counseling kind of space, but also up more towards the psychiatrist kind of space as well, you know, like working with much more, obviously not doing the medicines, but or the prescriptions, but just more working with it on a much more deeper level. Um, and also the clinical setting, I think only clinical psychologist or unless you've been trained, you know, you can work in those settings. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. You're in a mental hospital, they normally look for clinical um psychologists in that field so okay. it's got a little depth as far as the practical discerning and applications of the underlying origins and problems yeah. okay cool then i think to you know to kick off the real you know crux of it is if we talk about unconscious rebattening we talk about hypnotherapy and we bring that back to therapy as we know it um how how does that actually work and and how would uh, you know, how would this relate to therapy? So um, I work with a slightly different model, but I was trained in clinical hypnotherapy. The three modalities, there's medical hypnoanalysis, traditional and Ericksonian, where basically each modality just works in different applications and ways of how to access the unconscious mind and then how to reprocess it, working with um, different models. So um, when you work with the unconscious mind, according to the principles of medical hypnoanalysis, it has the logic of a child. So in that way, you can't really do intellectual reasoning, because if you intellectually reason with a child, it often says, yes, yes, it's going to get it, but then it doesn't. So you have to use metaphors, images, stories, and a lot of different ways to appeal to the unconscious mind, because it is a child. So you have to um, work with colors or pictures or analogies and metaphors. So in that way, it's bridging it differently. Just getting back to something I was just thinking about with hypnosis. I, I remember it's a story once I heard where a hypnosis guy on the stage said to a lady that when you go home, you're going to have a wonderful sleep and you're going to wake up feeling really refreshed. That was his suggestion only to discover that she called him a week later to say she hadn't slept for a whole week because she wasn't home. She was away mm -hmm. from home. <laughs> when you're home, you'll sleep very well. Nice. But sleep for a whole week because she wasn't home. So the unconscious takes things very literally. So you have to be quite careful of the words you use. 
So therapeutically, you get more an idea of what words to use so that you don't subliminally put suggestions in that will actually be detrimental to the individual. So when I work with it, I, what I do is I actually teach the individual how to do their own therapy in their own with their own selves. So it's a model which helps them to balance the mother, father, child within them so that eventually they learn how to maintain their own therapy by learning how to access their own unconscious patterns. And then they have a technique which they can use to, to continue their own processing. So therapeutically, the way I work is with a narrative storytelling process and a drawing technique, which is slightly different to all the modalities that I studied because I brought it all together and I formulated my own model that I use at the moment. And it is a projective story and drawing technique where I combine a lot of those modalities into this technique. Um, and I've been using it now for about 25 to 30 years. And um, it helps to just get a lot more clarity as to the origins of what's really happening in individuals. And then therapeutically, we run through a six-phase process to desensitize and reprocess those dynamics, which are very different to the conscious mind. So... It's a different model that I use. Yeah. Okay, that sounds. Uh, I mean, I think every time you speak, it's even more intriguing. <laughs> so I want to ask, you know, what, what are those six things, you know, uh, and, and stuff like that. So I mean, I, I think, um, and I, I like how you keep on, you know, referring to the unconscious mind as as a child. And I think, you know, I think we can all relate to that, you know, like because we have siblings or, you know, or, or um, you know, children or, and you know, we can always relate to it and say, okay, cool. You know, that kind of makes sense, you know, like that, you know, it doesn't work like that. I think for, for me, what I struggle with is like, where you don't have control over that, you know, that, that thing or person inside you. Um, and it's only, you know, using experts like yourself that we can even access that part. I think it's, it's always interesting. Um, but I suppose it's that the lack of control around it as well. You know, just like, you know, your analogy of the computer, like not, not many of us, uh, know what's happening within it. We just use the, you know, the GUI. We use the user interface, and everything seems to work fine. Um, but can you tell us? So, so if if someone had to come in for pattern, you know, like unconscious repatterning. I mean, how, how does that process actually pan out? I mean, how does it? So, I'm assuming when they come in as well, they're not going to ask. They're not going to tell you. Actually, you know, I've got an issue with my unconscious part and I need some help. They, they definitely don't say that, right? You're right. But you're right. There is a very, it's a very different logic. So it's very interesting to see because people aren't aware of that. So that's very interesting because the way that I work with it is using the storytelling process. So what I do is I get a person to tell a certain story, the story that I use as a metaphor, which holds the dynamics of the unconscious mind. We just get them to tell a story from a certain perspective. We get them to do some drawings. Based on the drawings and the story, we can see all the dynamics that are happening. So I consciously tell them the version of the story that we use, which is a very well-known children's story. And then when I get them to tell the story, each person tells a very different story to what they intellectually know. People are very surprised. They say, how come I told the story that way when I intellectually know it's this way? So that's why we can see how out of control we are with our projections when we project our unconscious patterns out. So I'll give you an example. So the story that I use is the story of Little Red Riding Hood. 
So most of us know that story. It's about a little child. She goes to visit Granny. Along the way, she meets the wolf. Then the wolf runs ahead, eats the Granny. Then when the child gets there, the wolf's pretending to be Granny. She asks those questions. You don't look like Granny. Then the wolf eats her, and she lands in the stomach. And then the woodcutter comes along, puts an end to the wolf, takes them out, and the three of them have the picnic, the granny, the child, and the red riding. So what I do is get the individual to tell the story from the perspective of the child, because the unconscious is the child. And everybody tells a completely different version. Because when they are being the child in the story, that's how we access the unconscious mind. So based on that it is a child, it's a strange thing because a child doesn't really know what a wolf is. So we know the wolf in the story represents all the problems in our life. The wolf is a principle of, I love you, but I'm going to eat you. It's a principle of conditional love where it breaks you down, there's no equal exchange, pretends to be what it's not. So the wolf represents the illusory aspects of life, where what you see is not always what you get. And it represents abusive cycles, judgment, criticism. It's how we get broken down in life. And it's anything that causes a problem. So the unconscious mind is a child. Children often don't know what a wolf is. They think the whole world is good. So they don't know what you see is not what you get. It's like if a burglar comes into the house, into the lounge, and a child is there. And it says to the child, hi, I'm borrowing your daddy's hi-fi today. The child will go, oh, what a nice man. Let me help you. Most of us, even if we adults, our unconscious mind is doing the same thing, where we're not able to discern those illusions. And that will cause problems in their life where they won't recognize on an unconscious level abusive cycles or addictive cycles. So, the, for example, the way an individual will tell the story is, I'm the child going to visit the granny. I carry on. I see the wolf. It looks friendly to me. It tells me to go this way, so I go that way. When I get to the house, I see Granny, and I go in and I give Granny the basket and we have tea. So that's an example of the individual who's not recognizing that that wolf in the house, they think it's Granny, meantime it's the wolf, which means in their life they fall, very, they're very gullible, and they give their basket to the first thing they see, mm. which means they jump into relationships into works, into situations, their unconscious mind is telling them it's grainy or it's innocuous. Meantime, they're not actually discerning that it's something that's setting them up and is going to end up, they're going to be eaten by the wolf, which means they're going to end up being betrayed or used or abused or whatever. So if you can't discern the problems from the unconscious level, you end up in problems and you actually don't even know you're there. So that's why a lot of people will tolerate abusive cycles because they're convinced that the perpetrator is actually right and they're wrong because the wolf always tells the child when it eats the child, it's your fault, I ate you because you didn't please me enough. And if you change yourself, the child, if you please me, then I'll love you. And that's why a lot of people end up um, engaging with abusive cycles, trying to change themselves or please others to get the love that they don't ever get. So it's a metaphor, and each person tells it in such a different way, but you can see the depth of how much they actually can't discern problems. And if you can't discern that the wolf is the wolf, and if you think it's grain, it translates into your life as a lot of problems. 
So we educate the unconscious mind, which is the child, as to the nature of what a wolf represents, because it's just the dark side of life. There's no judgment with it, but it's a reality that all of us need to manage. And once the child actually wakes up to get it, oh, that's not what I thought it was, then you can start bringing in the woodcutter aspects, which means they learn to be assertive. And um, the granny, which is a principle of love that's unconditional. And then you start to reprocess it via the story through a six-phase process. But there's a lot of depth to it. And each person is very surprised as to how they tell the story. But it starts helping them to see the parallels in their life as to the nature of why they are where they are. That is that is an amazing strategy. Uh, that is actually so powerful. And um, I have to ask though because you know humans we we stuck with so many problems at any given time but when when they say that story is it always the the most pressing problem that they're having right now or is it like a like a generalized problem that they have and that they experience in life so i mean i'm, I'm thinking like something work related okay so i'm struggling i'm burnt i'm burnt out at the moment so you know like maybe they would say something about that or would they say something to the effect of i always pick these stressful environments because i always want to get you know, like almost like beaten down, you know, it's almost like I, you know, I, I want to be in that scenario so I can complain about it or something like that. Do you find that it's a lot more deeper or is it the most pressing thing that they, you know, that they're experiencing? Mm. So with each problem, the story is a hologram, which actually represents the whole totality of their life. So one small thing is actually a representative principle of how they're dealing with every moment. For example, um, starts off from the most sublime, simple things to the, the biggest things in life. So, for example, watching TV, if you don't like the program, it's a wolf aspect because it's breaking you down. And um, changing the channel is an example of putting an end to the wolf. And pulling out another channel is an example of pulling out the grainy, which means when you put an end to something bad for you, something better emerges. A lot of people can't do that. And if you can't do it in the story, where you can't put an end to the wolf in the story, it means they believe problems can't be solved, mm. which means enough, they won't solve problems from the smallest problem to the biggest. So any problem that anybody comes with, whether it's work situations or relationships or whatever it is, it all boils down to their core underlying set of belief systems and patterns that are operating because whatever we believe on an unconscious level will directly and proportionally manifest in their lives so when you change just the story you change the program you change every moment of the whole reality so it is um, a hologram and that will translate into all moments and often people once they've done the six phases they change their lives dramatically completely People say to me that they actually feel like they're living in a different future now. They've changed their whole reality so much because it translates every moment. If you can't identify a problem every moment, um, it will extend into the smallest to the biggest things. Okay. Yeah. I think, uh, Debbie, you kept us in suspense for long enough. So can you tell us what that six-phase pr process is? Uh, obviously, high level and, and I think disclaimer with everything is, you know, it's not mm -hmm. one you know, it's not one size fits everyone. I think it's, you know, but can you explain it at a high level or huge brush strokes? Sure. So what we do is we balance the mother, father, child in them. So, for example, if that individual walks into the house and sees granny, 
not knowing that it's the wolf. That means they haven't encountered the real grain. The real granny represents love that's unconditional, that I love you for who you are. It's what a child needs to grow because the child is like the yellow of an egg. The granny is the white of an egg that nourishes the emotional body. And the woodcutter is the shell. The woodcutter part of us is our male principle. It's the father. It's the part of us that needs to be assertive, say no, set boundaries and take actions. If there's no woodcutter in the story, then that individual doesn't know how to be assertive how to set boundaries. If there's no granny in the story other than the wolf, then they don't know how to love themselves or love others. So the more missing a role model in early childhood, for example, if the child grows up in early childhood without a parent, a mother or a father, but not necessarily physically absent, a parent can be there, but they can be emotionally absent. They can still be there, but they won't be fulfilling that role. Then when the child grows up and becomes an adult, they don't know how to be their own mother or their own father, which means they can't love themselves as an adult or be an adult male to take actions. So then they're predominantly fixated in the child's state of being, which means they're a yellow of an egg, but there's no white and there's no shell, so that they're reactive completely without awareness. So what we do is we teach them how to be their own granny and their own woodcutter, which means learning how to be your own mother and your own father so that you heal your own inner child. Because when you're imagining the concepts, the unconscious doesn't know the difference between imagination and reality. So just by imagining now I'm the granny, now I'm giving love to my inner child, which is the Red Riding Hood, then you're learning how to be your own mother and how to heal your own wounds, and how to, once it's healed, the child becomes a lot more calmer, and then it becomes, responds elegantly. Then we learn how to be your own woodcutter or your own father, and how to actually put an end to the wolf, because putting the end to the wolf means solving problems. Most people can't do that. Most people are trying to kill the wolf from the perspective of the child because they've never had a woodcutter or a granny there for them. So if you try and kill the wolf as the child, the wolf always wins. So that means an anger starts to build up, and then they become volatile and reactive, because the child in them can't kill the wolf. So they start getting very frustrated, and then the anger gets used against them, because the wolf will reverse it against the child and say, oh, you're angry, and then the wolf actually attacks the child even more. So anger becomes self-destructive. So in the sixth phase is the first phase is we teach the individual how to be the granny, which means how to be their own mother, how to be the woodcutter, which means how to be your own father, how to identify the wolf as the child, because that takes quite a while. The hardest thing for a child to grasp is the nature of duality, which sounds kind of strange, but a child doesn't know the difference between light and dark. It thinks the whole world is good. So if you tell that when the child gets eaten by the wolf and it meets the real granny, a lot of people say, well, that granny said it was granny, which is the wolf. Now here's another granny in the stomach that says it's granny. So now who do I trust? Then they don't trust the real granny because they've learned to throw the baby and the bathwater out, which means in their life they can't trust and open up to love that's there. So that's why it takes quite a while to teach the unconscious mind, which is the child, to trust the real granny and to mistrust the wolf. That takes quite a while sometimes, which is why a lot of people retreat into themselves and they don't know how to open up, how to receive love. 
because they can't discern the difference between the wolf and the grain. So in the first phase, we teach them how to do that. And once they're ready to let go of the wolf, because often the child is not ready to let go of the wolf because they're so familiar. It's like being in jail. They believe it's a safe zone. It's comfortable. Mm. Because their whole life they've learned love and pain get associated. The wolf bites them and says, I love them. And they think it's normal, especially if as a child they've associated abusive cycles with comfort, with survival. Because the unconscious adopts belief systems according to the way it learns to survive in early childhood and how to be loved. And if it learns to survive and be loved with abusive cycles, it associates a survival with a wolf, with something that breaks it down. So the first phase is actually educating the unconscious child, the difference between the wolf and the grain. It's not often, we think intellectually it's quite easy, but most individuals, when they get to do it, they see, wow, that's quite hard. I didn't realize I don't trust even the grainy, which means in life they've never trusted relationships, even themselves, they don't trust. And then um, then we teach them how to be the woodcutter. Often when they're the woodcutter, they don't know how to put an end to the wolf. For example, they'll be the woodcutter and they'll say, I'm now talking to the wolf saying, please spit them out which means in life they negotiate. They don't, they're not assertive. They don't take actions and they expect collaboration from the wolf, which you never get, which means they don't know that actually you can't get collaboration. You have to just take actions and be assertive. So it rebalances the mother, father, child in them. That's the first phase. We, we, we move towards getting them to have a picnic. A picnic means there's a happy ending. A lot of people will say in their first story, I'm rewriting it, I get to the house, I see the wolf, it doesn't look very familiar, it looks something's wrong, but I get eaten. And then they say, oh, Red Riding Hood is now, I'm dead. They'll die in the stomach, which means they go through a symbolic death of their inner child. <clears throat> Excuse me. And when the inner child dies, there's no more joy, no more fun, no more passion in their lives. Because the child part of us represents creativity, excitement, joy, living in the moment and passion. If their inner child dies in the stomach, in their story, that's an indication in their life they've lost their zest for life. And there's no real granny that they meet in the stomach, which means in their life they've never had emotional support in times of trouble. And then they don't even know how to be that adult support for themselves. And then the depression results. Okay. By getting them to be the granny in the stomach, we bridge that support and teach them how to be their own mother so that they become whole. Because if you don't know how to be your own mother and your own father, you constantly look outside for it, only to discover you never get it. And it just repeats these abusive cycles where you trap people that are going to play out that wolf aspect and you, the abuse continues. So the first phase is identifying and helping them to be the mother, father, child, and how to deal with problems when it happens, when they get eaten. And we teach them sometimes you do get eaten because a lot of people believe they don't get eaten, which means they believe my world is fine. There's no problems. But when you look at their life, there's chaos. So often on a conscious level, it's very different to what's happening on an unconscious level. And then you show them, look, you're in denial if you don't get eaten. Often they'll say, I'm riding it. I see the wolf and I run, which means their coping mechanism is flight. You either get fight, flight or freeze. Some people will say, I'm red riding and fighting the wolf with a knife to stab the wolf. 
then obviously they're going to lose because the wolf is far more powerful. Or they'll freeze. They'll just stand there and say, I don't know, nothing else is happening, which means in the life they often freeze anytime there's a problem and they don't move forward to the happy picnic. Most people don't have their happy picnic the first time, which means they don't believe in solutions. They're not able to identify problems and they don't have emotional support or resources to navigate through to a happy ending to solve problems. So we change those belief systems in the first phase. Then the second phase, we, we do a preventative phase where we, where we educate the unconscious how to discern the wolf this time. And before they get eaten, they learn to intercept the wolf as the woodcutter, put an end to it and pull out the granny who's there on standby. And then they learn in life to learn from the past so that they don't repeat the same mistakes so that now they have the resources to intercept problems before they escalate. <clears throat> because most of humanity doesn't learn from the past. Even us as individuals, we play the same thing out over and over again. Mm. It's because the unconscious mind hasn't actually registered what's going on. So preventatively, once they learn as the child to recognize the wolf, then they learn to mobilize their woodcutter aspect and how to be the woodcutter. Then they put an end to the wolf before they get eaten, pull out the grainy, and then they have a quicker picnic when now that same problem doesn't repeat. Once people can do that, they save themselves a lot of time because they don't attract the same kind of relationships or the same kind of jobs because they recognize, oh, there's a red flag. Now I'm going to act assertively, say no, and I'm expecting something better. Then they get it. Because if you believe in something better, which is the granny coming out of the stomach, then you get it. A lot of people don't even believe in something better. A lot of people will say, I'm in the second phase. They'll say, I'm the woodcutter putting an end to the wolf and I had red riding it, which means no granny emerged, which means they believe that the wolf was the granny. Mm. And if I put an end to the wolf, I put an end to everything. And that's a belief system that I'm going to lose everything to get nothing which a lot of people believe. Then they realize, oh, there is a granny there coming out, which is different to the wolf. Then they get a new belief system. If I put an end to something bad for me, something better will emerge, which is the granny. And that in itself is a belief system that's changed, which brings corresponding changes in our lives. So it's very interesting. There's quite a lot of belief systems that we bought into that we're not even aware of but they keep playing out every moment. So the second phase is learning how to preventatively not allow problems to escalate. Ideally, I always think if everybody can do it as an individual, then globally we won't repeat the same challenges of history, which is very important so that we don't keep playing out these patterns of war. Because the war actually indicates the disconnect between the mind and the body, where we're not able to elegantly manage our anger. And when we are the child fighting the wolf, our anger is out of control. So part of anger transmutation is learning how to be the woodcutter to deal with the wolf, not the child. Because when you deal with it as a woodcutter, the adult male part of us has a different repertoire of behaviors. Because when you're the woodcutter, you walk differently, talk differently, project differently, and you have better impact. And then the third phase is another preventative aspect where you catch the wolf in the forest, where you as the child recognize that first moment in life that you're being set up. Because that's when the wolf sends you down the wrong road 
So it buys it time to go and sabotage your future, to put an end to the granny, which represents your best future version of love. So the third phase is where you learn how to intercept the wolf as the woodcutter in the in the forest, so that you learn in life to be aware of those very first moments that you're being set up that most of us miss. And then we learn how not to let that happen where the granny doesn't get eaten. So that now, preventatively, you speed up the results of achieving your intentions that you set out for. And you speed up your results in life. And then the fourth and fifth phases are boundaries where we do our shadows. Because we know that we are the wolf too. So we can't, um, we've got to do all aspects of the story. Because the wolf is the shadow. So it's the darker side of life. And whatever's done to us in early childhood, as we grow up, we do that to others unconsciously. Even though we say, I'm never going to repeat the same things my parents did to me. When we get older, we look, we're doing very similar things, but in slightly different ways, if not very similar. So by doing the fourth and fifth phases, we're actually learning how we are the wolf and our shadow. And um, then we learn a lot. It's about boundaries. Um, we start to bring in a concept which is very different, where we show that the more compelling to rescue another, it's an indication that whatever we're trying to rescue in another is actually unresolved in ourselves, which is a concept of trying to be a tree, giving another tree my sunshine, believing that if I give the tree next door my sunshine, then that tree will love me and be there for me only to discover that that tree starts shouting at you when you stop giving it your sunshine. And then you expect that tree to give it your, at that tree's sunshine. And then you get codependent relationships where you're running a three-legged race together. And then there's conflict because you fight. So it's learning to become emotionally accountable for yourself and independent, where you are a tree accessing your own sunshine and water, trusting that all the other trees can do it. So we learn to become a lot more independent emotionally, where you learn to be your own mother, your own father, so that you don't look for it in others and get conflict, so that you can eventually attract a relationship where there's more balance, where you'll attract somebody that will mirror your own inner balance. So the boundaries helps to understand a lot more depth in relationships, even your own relationship with yourself. After the fourth and fifth phases, you become much more totally accountable for all that you are without projecting a lot of your problems onto others. And then the sixth phase, once we've got all those tools in place, then we go and navigate actually the small particulars or the big particulars in that individual's life. But by then, they have all the information as how to navigate the problems now in a totally different way because they learn to communicate differently as a woodcutter, not as the child. Because when you become the woodcutter, you're not reactive. You respond very elegantly. When you're the granny, you love yourself so that you no longer need the validation or the source of love external to you. So you become a lot more whole in yourself. And then your cup runs over and you're able to serve a lot more as a role model of that balance and empowerment. I use the analogy of before you dive in the deep end of the sea, you've got to have your goggles, your flippers, your snorkels, and your oxygen tank. Then it's easy to go and deal with exploring the unconscious depths. So I don't like to do practical applications into individuals' particulars in life until they've got all those tools of the first five phases 
then when they go into now, let's go right into that situation where this and this and this happened in your life. And then we say, now in that situation, how would you do differently if you were a woodcutter? How would you love yourself through that? And then we practically apply it into the situations in the past, which then equips them how to be prepared for future events that come, which helps them to be a lot more balanced and to navigate the depths of life with a lot more ease. And then it becomes, then they learn to be their own therapist, where they now can keep practicing these phases, because the first phase always changes. People always say, gee, I know all this information, but now my story has gone right back to another layer of stuff comes up and their story, it seems like they feel it regresses. But it's just bringing up deeper layers. But once they know how to process it, they keep doing it for themselves as an ongoing maintenance. So it's um, quite exciting because people get wonderful results and they actually know how to work with it for themselves after that as well. So uh, that's just a brief touch on those six phases. Yeah, I'm in awe <laughs> in terms of how powerful that is. Hey? I mean, how you broke that down. Uh, did you, I mean, is this a modality or is this something that you came up with from a strategy, you know, around therapy um, that you work with clients? Yeah, I've developed it myself. Okay. So, um, yeah, after completing the three modalities of hypnotherapy, I started to <clears throat> explore these concepts in myself. And then I used it on my own self, which is one of the only things that really helped me. Because in part of doing the hypnotherapy training, we had to do 12 sessions ourselves. And I found I wasn't getting results. I was still very traumatized. I had a lot of cycles. So once I developed the model and I started implementing it to myself, I got huge results. I started to see how I was completely fooled that the wolf was grainy. And then I saw the parallels of how much I'd allow abusive cycles. Then I started realizing, gee, I didn't even have a granny or a woodcutter. So these things I experientially had to work through myself. And then I decided one day to implement it in my practice and just, just develop from there into the model. We're now trained psychologists and um, it brings a lot more depth in a very short period of time. And it's very user-friendly because it's kind of, you can see it in the story. There's so many applications as well now that mm -hmm. brings it. Yeah, well done. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I wish I met you or I heard this, you know, these few minutes, uh, you know, probably 40 years ago, you know, as I was starting, you know, like, well, you know, I would have been like seven or something. But, you know, like, I, I, what I like about it is the story part, because I mean, everyone goes back to that. You know, I think even, I mean, I, you know, with business, you know, the one thing I heard, uh, which changed the way we do marketing, as an example, was the whole hero's journey. So when you said, I wanted, you know, we, we work on a story, and I was in my mind, I'm kind of preparing myself for the hero's journey. And then you pull out Red Riding Hood, and I'm like, okay, cool, I wasn't expecting that. Um, but I, I like how you, you know, that, that story, and tying it, you know, figuratively, you know, to, to different things, you know, makes a lot of sense for me. And I think also what it, what it does is it binds you to the story, you know, in everyone in their own perspective, which I think is, is remarkable, you know, which is amazing. Um, do you find and, and uh, this is more a cur curiosity thing, because, you know, adults, we, we lose that creative side, you know, I think as we get older, do you find that people normally drop to that level quite easily? You know, drawing, when I mean, you say drawing, I mean, it sounds so simple as well. But I think the biggest thing is like giving an adult like a blank piece of paper and like 
colored pencils and saying draw because that you know doesn't come easily um do you find people drop to that level quite easily surprisingly yes oh. i'd say around 98 percent of people that i see are quite comfortable to do it once they recognize that the unconscious is a child and it's a way to actually access what's going on when they draw they're very surprised by what they've drawn because i show them exactly the parallels and then it just brings so much clarity of insights um there are a few, there's about 2% of people that actually can't draw at all. But that's an indication again there that the inner child has gone through a death because it's the child part of us that can draw. It's the child part of us that's creative, that makes magic, that lives in the moment. That individual then, if they can't draw, that means they can't ex- they can't express their own self creatively. And they, or they've got fears. A lot of people have got fears that if I draw, I'm going to be judged. You're going to find out things about me. You're going to. Um, so a lot of people are hesitant because of they've been so suppressed in their lives or so broken down and so judged that they're afraid to put themselves out there for that fear. But then we just gently move through that where we, you know, help them to realize that it's not a, you know, and then we help with their own judgments in life of how to be comfortable to express themselves in other ways as well. So... But generally, a lot of people, once they draw and once they tell the story, you can they get a lot of clarity. Some people are also can't tell the story. Like we say, be the child in the story and go and visit the grainy. And in your imagination, tell me what happens from the beginning. A lot of people can't access the child part of them at all, which is another indication of a symbolic death of their own inner child. So we have to work on resurrecting that aspect of them, which is the inner child. The only reason the inner child goes through a death is because there's no granny, there's no woodcutter. And the the abusive cycles of the wolf aspect is too intense. So they delete or they they dissociate, they hop out of themselves, or they are not present, which means they're not truly living their true potential. Because when a child is playing at the picnic because it's loved by the granny and protected by the woodcutter and the wolf is gone, that's when we can align with our true life purpose and we can manifest our potential because we have to do it through the joy of living from the heart as the child because that's where our inner life purpose is is through every moment living that magic where we've come on the earth to fully live our creative spark not to comply to the agendas of the wolf aspect which most a lot of people are doing A lot of people believe if I'm the child, if I want to survive, I have to please the wolf and learn to be happy in its stomach and comply or acquiesce or change myself or learn to smile in the stomach of the wolf. So once they get out, they make huge shifts where they recognize the actual challenge that they've had, where the fear is I'll lose everything if I let go of the wolf and get nothing, as I said before. Then they realize I've lost nothing to gain my own independence and abundance. So a lot of people respond really well. Also to mention that it's a cross-cultural thing because some people say, won't it be different? Because I know a lot of um, African cultures don't know the story. But um, once we just tell them the story consciously, it's the same results because it's just the mother, father, child within all cultures that is universal. So uh, I've seen a lot of people, and even sometimes like the child is a, a little girl, that's Red Riding Hood, but we just tell them if it's men, you can say you can be a male child. But a lot of men I've seen that are really grown all go and be the little female child 
and it's still you get the same results because the child is basically neutral. Um, but you get the same results from all kinds of, you know, anybody. Mm. And it works really well with children as well, like foster with children, because they don't have as many layers of programming that adults do. That is interesting. Yeah, it's incredible, actually. And what I like about it is it's a very short story. I mean, it's not like a really drawn out story. And I think, you know, as I mean, I, I can't think of that story any differently now after this conversation. But, you know, it represents, you know, things which are very profound. And I mean, the like the fatherly figure doesn't have to be a father, it could be a fatherly figure, you know, whatever that protection is, and you know, in your life and stuff like that, um, which is actually really cool. And I mean, obviously, the wolf, I mean, different dangers. Um, but traumatic experiences, you know, my understanding of it is like, you know, it, you know, it shuts down certain parts of the brain. And you know, like, so you didn't even recognize or you can't recognize the wolf as it is. Do you find do you have to break through that boundary a little bit, you know, to be is that where the hypnotherapy kind of comes in, to be able yeah. to recognize the wolf? Because what we do is we show with traumatic events that they're not random. They're directly proportional to your program. If you as the child believe the wolf is grainy, there's a lot of trauma you're going to experience because you're going to keep going and falling in. You're going to be in situations where you're going to always attract abusive cycles and trauma. So we show the person. I know that I've worked with families who've been robbed consecutively in about four years. They moved and moved and moved and moved, got security systems and all sorts of things. And we just addressed each person in the family's unconscious patterns, where we showed how all of them were succumbing to the wolf aspect. They all believed it was grainy, except for one daughter who was a lot more, she'd become a lot more empowered in her own processing. She could recognize the wolf. She believed in solutions. Her woodcutter came and killed the wolf and got her out. She was the only one who was never in those robberies. She was always either visiting a friend. So circumstantially, I say we lack magnets. And whatever your magnet believes will determine your iron filings around you. So your outer circumstances reflects your inner magnets' belief systems. So it's not by accident if you keep getting traumas. It's because it's showing us your program. So by changing your program and learning to recognize the wolf, put an end to it and prevent it and not allow it, trauma, incidence of trauma subsides. That family, when they were robbed consecutively, it's now been about 10 years and they're completely trauma. They haven't been robbed again because energetically those situations don't come to them. And each trauma we show them has direct parallels to their story. So... Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's just reprocessing the story and then it gives them the tools of how to how to make the changes. And also getting back to when you say, for example, learning how to be their own their father. It's very difficult because when I say to them for the first time, now be the woodcutter and tell me what you do when you see the wolf. What they do is they access in their computer what a father is. So they Google search in their own computer father. And it'll pop up whatever they've known with their biological father. And then they'll they'll do that. But often it's not functional. For example, um, when I say be the woodcutter, they'll say, I'm very strong. I'm very confident. I know what to do. I've got my weapon. I've got my axe. I'm very assertive. I'm going to get them out. And their story stops. Which means that they haven't followed through. They don't act on what they say. They procrastinate and they are an illusion of control because they believe I'm strong. But when you look in the story, they didn't actually kill the wolf and get them out. So they didn't 
put action into what they're feeling, which is what their father biological would have done to them. Their father would have always said, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. A lot of empty promises that were never followed through. So that's why when we teach them how to be the woodcutter, they've got to become something that's totally unimaginable, that they've never seen, which hasn't been programmed into their computer. I always say we've got to go to the app store and download Woodcutter, which is a totally different thing that's not in your perceptual reality. Because people say to me, who is my Woodcutter that I know? And we've got to say it's nobody because it's never been installed in your computer. So we've got to learn what is the ideal Woodcutter that's absolute? What is the ideal mother that's absolute? That you can't reference anything that you've seen. And then we have to learn how to internalize that, embody it be it, and then access that where you learn how to be your own ideal mother and father. So it's bringing in totally different concepts, but it balances it a lot more. Mm. So once we can do that, the trauma stops because they'll recognize the problem, intercept, and eventually it stops. I even saw that in my own life at one stage when I had, um, when I completely believed in the wolf, I had a lot of traumatic incidents keep on happening. But the more I worked on my own story, I saw how preventatively it would just stop before it escalated. And eventually, it's it's dramatically reduced since I've been working it on myself. So nothing's right. Yeah, yeah. I've been through the therapy process myself. And I think, you know, uh, I mean, the one thing you hear, and obviously, I've, you know, done enough of these episodes, you know, where I kind of learned it as well, is, you know, around the re, you know, like, uh, recognizing the cycles, I think most people, they don't even realize that, you know, the cycles. But I wish I, again, like that that's what I said, I wish I heard you speak, you know, many, many years ago, because it would have made it a lot more tangible, you know, in terms of identifying those cycles as well, you know, and identifying the different, you know, aspects of the story. Because I think with myself as well, it was like the same thing It's like, you know, how do I, how do I carve that story? And that's why even when I, you know, when I heard the psychologist mention about changing the narrative, it kind of spoke to me because I was like, okay, cool, you know, that's, that's kind of what I was doing. And you know, like, that's what I like. And I think everyone should do that. But I, I think with you, you've taken it to another level, I think, in terms of how you bring that across. Um, I want to go because this is really fascinating. But I do want to make sure we carry, you know, we, we, we get the essence of, you know, the hypnotherapy part as well, because you mentioned, there's one technique that you use, you know, with your clients. Can you tell us what that is? And also, when do you use it? And the one technique is the red, it's called the red riding and reconditioning technique. Okay. And I cross the spectrum with anybody and everybody that comes. The only one's very difficult to use it is those that can't tell the story or do the drawing at all because they've completely shut down. So you can't get the information and you can't get the story because they've completely gone numb. I ask them to tell the story and they go blank. They say nothing's happening. So it's a little bit difficult with those people there. What I also do is um, EMDR, which is uh, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, um, where you do a pattern interrupt, where you actually do sets of eye movements, and it links the left brain to the right brain. It also helps to feed information across that barrier, and it helps to integrate and um, um, release a lot of the old patterns and belief systems through eye movements. Because when you're doing eye movements, it makes a distraction and it interrupts the old patterns and then you feed information in that way. 
So sometimes I incorporate the EMDR into the red riding and reconditioning technique. But after the years, I discovered that just doing the red riding technique on its own has the same results because you pattern interrupting by getting them to be the grain, being the woodcutter um, in itself. So I'll only use the EMDR in cases where they can't visualize or there's quite a fixation, there's quite a trauma that they're not moving through. So I do interchange the two. Um, which are both ways to bypass the conscious mind. That's why it also saves a lot of time because you don't need to hear the whole long history of the person, which takes quite a time sometimes mm. because we don't want to just kind of go into what is. We just identify the pattern and then we focus on the future, making the changes because that's what we want to do as fast as possible is open up a new timeline in the future by changing the belief systems. Because you change the magnet, the iron findings change, your reality does. So it's a lot faster in that way as well. Um, so that's primarily the the technique that I use um, okay. with everybody. Yeah. Okay, thanks thanks so much for, for saying that in so much more detail as well. So it's it's clear in our minds, I think, you know, where the two kind of fit in. And I mean, it's logical, it kind of makes a lot of, you know, sense also how that works. Um, and I think, you know, like you said, you know, rather than going back through the historical part of the, you know, of your life, um, I think that's why, I mean, I see, you know, BWRT, you know, CBT starting to get a lot more traction, you know, with people and, you know, saying, you know, how do we make changes, you know, a lot more faster and, you know, concentrating on a much more shorter time frame as well with that, um, rather than doing, you know, the longer bursts of therapy. Because I think we're living in a world as well that's changing so quickly, and it's—I mean—it's pretty traumatic at the best of times, anyway. And uh, you know, people just want to like learn the coping mechanisms, you know, to, to move forward. Um, mm. But but I think you know, for me, what resonates with this and also similar topics is is yes, one is like doing the coping mechanisms, but it's also becoming better, you know, transcending that you know that storyline. So that and and that's why like the work around generational trauma, you know, is very interesting for me. You know, like generationally, are we getting better? You know, with time, I think is very very interesting. Um, you know, from a personal point of view. Um, and resources or books or anything like that. You know, do you find you point your your patients or anyone that asks to certain things? Well, I've written a book about it, um, so I often give them the book that I've written for them to actually help them to grasp the theoretical applications, the definitions of the characters, and just a little bit about the logic of the unconscious and a little bit about the um, the process through. Um, so it's because it's a different model, there isn't much resources anywhere else really to read up on that unless you just go to hypnotherapy principles. So I incorporate ego state, Ericksonian, hypnotherapy ego state is where you learn to be one character then another and to bridge the two so the ego state comes in where, where they learn how to be the grainy and the woodcutter ericksonian is a lot of metaphors analogies so for an example a metaphor that we'd use with a child who can't trust the grain because the child will sometimes we work on people especially if they've got bipolar disorder they don't trust the real grainy in the story they trust the wolf more than the grainy and it takes a long time to teach them the granny's the good one, the wolf is not, because they don't get it. So an, a metaphor we'll use is we'll say, now be the granny and you are sunshine, and the child is the sunflower. And feel how when you shine your sunflower, the sun into the sunflower, you as the sunflower can receive it. 
And then we get them to be the sun and the sunflower to build that connection. And then we say, when you're the sunflower and you see the moon, the moon looks full, but there's no light there. You have to close your petals down to the moon. To know the moon is like the wolf. It looks full, but there's no light there. It's deception. It's an illusion. And it's going to go dark. It yo-yos between full moon and darkness. The wolf is sometimes there for you, sometimes not. But the sunshine is always there. It's radiating. It's unconditional. So those metaphors um, are Ericksonian, but it helps the child to start learning, oh, the granny is sunshine, the wolf is dark, and they start to learn to trust a lot more, and then they're ready to let go the, the wolf and the moon. Once they can do that, and once they can be the woodcutter, they can start saying no to the abusive relationships. They can start getting out of toxic situations, and they do. Or even addictions, they can start saying no to the alcohol, the drugs, because an alcohol is another form of emotional support and drugs and shopping, which means there's no grain. So it does extend in that way. Mm. Yeah. And uh, Debbie, sorry, I don't think you mentioned the name of the book. Is it on Amazon and, and um, those bookstores? It's a little red, red, red riding and reconditioning revised, but I only have copies that are kind of sell um, on my website. Like, yeah. oh, okay, so like physical copies. Okay, so then we'll just link to your website then. Um, is it on uh, just electronic as well as physical copies or just physical? Um, it's a physical copy and it's an ebook as well. Oh, okay, and then nice. a little book that describes and runs through the six-phase process as a summary. Okay. So it summarizes exactly what to do for each phase. Okay. And your website? Uh, we'll be linked to it on the show notes as well. Yeah, it's www.debbiehouse.com. Okay, perfect. I'm busy writing another book with a lot more because I wrote that book quite a while back but I'm busy updating it and revising because there's a lot more information and depth that has come through since then related to it. Okay. And any ethical considerations that you normally have? Uh, and I asked this question specifically for any practitioners listening to the, you know, to the uh, episode and they're saying, you know, I really like, you know, the modality and, you know, there's something that I need to be aware of or something like that. But do you find is there any ethical considerations other than the general ones of, you know, patient, you know, uh, practitioner privilege and privacy of information and things like that? Um, in what form, in what context would you say? Um, so any anything that, you, you know, you find with your particular clients that you, you know, from an ethical point of view, you have to consider over and above. Um, so, you know, I've had clients that say, for instance, you know, if you're doing therapy, this is like a very obvious one, but like, you know, obviously you can't be in a space where everyone can hear the conversation. That sounds like, you know, so it's a privacy of information, um, you know, and stuff like that. But do you find that, you know, with with working with, you know, unconscious repatterning or hypnotherapy, there's anything over and above that? that people need to be aware um, well i find that in families especially in families i find it's very useful to actually give the information of what the child's story and drawings is to the adults and then also to do the same process with the adults so in that way i like to because often they say you shouldn't really give information to the parents about the child unless they give consent so i always try and get the consent from the child because it's very therapeutically valuable for the child, for the adults to see, because a child often is a combination of both parents' unconscious patterns. It adopts that. So in, when you mention generationally, we can see that um, a child copies a combination of both parents' patterns. 
So in that context, I would always like to share that information, especially in families, because it brings a lot more depth of understanding of why they're acting like they're acting. And then it helps the parents to realize they need to work on themselves as a role model so that they will inspire and foster the changes in their children. Because if the parents don't and the children are evolving, then it kind of retards their own forward movement a lot. And I've seen that quite a lot. So that would I say is the only sort of ethical kind of thing that I can think of. Um, but obviously the confidentiality and all the other aspects we, we do run through that. Yeah. Okay. That is actually interesting. Another am amazing nugget of information, you know, around around therapy that I don't think I've come across that much is, you know, parents also need to go for therapy. Uh, because I think they always drop off their children for therapy, you know, go do your therapy, and yet they haven't done therapy themselves. And um, yeah, I think is is a really crucial point that you. And there's direct proportions between the parents' programs and the children, and they're often quite amazed when they see it. And a lot of times, because remember, us as parents can be wounded children. So if we haven't learned how to be our own mother and our own father, we are wounded children looking for support outside. And quite sadly, what happens is an adult will turn the child into being their parent. And then you get a role reversal where the child becomes the adult because the adult is the child. Mm. And the child has to be a surrogate parent to parent the adult. And then generationally it gets passed down. Where mm. When they grow up, they turn their children into being their parent. And it places a huge burden on the child to be what it can't be. I always say it's an analogy of a parent bird that can't fly. And the mm. parent bird Telling the baby bird, now fly and flap your wings. What's wrong with you? Just flap your wings and fly and be independent. But often the baby birds are looking at the parents saying, show me how to fly. Mm. And they can't. So that's why it's important for them to actually be balanced because that's what they have to offer. You you won't believe how much that what you just said now is like actually so profound for me is uh, because I, this is the one thing I, I like firmly believe as well is that you get so many people and obviously parents, you know, that expect their children to go to university and become this person, but they're doing nothing, you know, in their own lives, you know, to do anything like that. And I must admit, being in the UK has been quite refreshing from the perspective of this, like, yeah, I, I don't know, I, I think maybe growing up with this, I, I got stuck into this pattern where people would say, I'm, I'm retired. Okay, that's the end of it now. You know, like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life, but basically I'm retired. Whereas here I find people, even in their 60s, 70s, they're still studying and they're doing all of those things and almost like that life doesn't end when they retire. And I find that's quite refreshing, you know, from a from a change of thought. And I think my whole point with this is like, you should never stop working on yourself, you know, not not like because people always use the, i don't know if you've come across this as well but people say like uh you know do everything for my children kind of something to that effect to the point where like you know it's almost like they're sacrificing themselves and i i think as a as a principle i don't quite believe that i think you should always be doing stuff for yourself and obviously do stuff for your children and do that <laughs> but i'd love to unpack that topic you know at some point i don't think we've covered it in as much detail but that's, that's a good one. Yes, no, thanks for bringing up. That's very relevant. Because you're right, as soon as you start, you stop creating your own life and you stop living your own potential, then you do project it into others and you try and live it via them, which is what you're saying. It's a good point. Then parents live their life via their children. And they all will actually, it's the same thing I mentioned. If something's unresolved in you and you can't heal it, you will see it out there and then you try and rescue it out there. 
and fervently you'll try and solve it out there, but actually it just means it's not solved inside of you. And when you take accountability to learn, to see that the reason I'm so compelled to save that person or rescue them is because I'm actually feeling their pain because it's me. Mm. So then once they learn to heal themselves and then take accountability to create your own life magically, then the balance is restored where you don't project it into others. And it frees others to find their own wings, to flap their own wings as too. So it's a lovely point, you're right. Mm, yeah. And and the reason I say it's worth a discussion is because there's that invisible link where when a child succeeds, the parent almost thinks that they've succeeded. But, you know, like in many ways, they haven't really, you know, wrote, you know, when it did the degree, you know, being the successful professional, whatever that is. But there is that invisible line, you know, that people people seem to have. Um, which it's, is incredible. Yeah, because it forces the child to actually learn to um, please the parent, especially if they've learned to suppress their own voice, to suppress their own natural truth in favor of being loved by the tribe. Then they do suppress that. And then later in years, they look back and they say, you know, I didn't really want to do that. Or, I wasn't enjoying that. I was just doing it to fit in, to belong, to acquiesce, to do the right thing, which is again how they've learned to please the wolf to survive, to be loved, or to belong, or to be accepted. Mm. So actually everybody is confronted with the authentic self, um, which means what gives me joy? What do I want to do? We use that in the story a lot where we, where we work with a basket. Often in the beginning, the child will say, I'm packing the basket with medicine to go and give granny because she's sick, and mom's giving me the basket of stuff and the fruit for granny. So that indicates their life purpose because the reason they leave the house indicates their motivation for moving forward. And what goes into the basket and who's it packed for indicates their value in life. If they pack the basket for the granny who's sick and they believe I have to give the basket to granny because the mother's telling me, their life, they believe they're a delivery boy serving others. Make, they're a child making an adult happy. They believe I'm taking the fruit to give to the granny who's sick. They believe my value is determined on how much can I make other people happy, fix them, make them better. How much can you be a child sacrificing my picnic, my joy, to go and serve others? Then you look at their life, their whole life is motivated around packing other people's baskets, making other people happy. And when you look, they're depressed because they're not living their life for themselves. So we reprocess that too. We get them to be the grainy and to say to the child, what would you like me to pack in the basket for you? Because it's not the wolf, it's not the granny they're giving the basket to. It's the wolf. Because a wolf would say, where's my basket? Then I'll love you. That's a wolf. They don't know it. So generationally, we all programmed to serve others to survive, not recognizing that we have to first have our own picnic to embrace joy, live from the heart, make our cups full, and then we can serve a lot better. So when you ask an individual often at the picnic, we get them to be the granny and ask the child, what would you like in the basket? A lot of times they don't know because they've never had a chance to access their authentic being. And they will say, gee, I've never thought about that question. What would I like in my basket? And we reframe it to teach them the journeys about your picnic, that the adults are going to care for you. You don't have to care for the adults. That in itself gives them a whole new purpose of life. Mm, because it's so, enjoyment of doing the picnic. 
and mm. going and spending time with granny, which you enjoy doing. And she's going to, you know, gush over you and do all of those things. And yeah, that's actually an interesting point too. To granny, then she'll give me that, which is mm. actually because they don't know what granny is. Mm. And then when they frame that, they learn, oh, I have a right to authentically live my truth. And then they can align with their higher aspects. Because when the mother, father, child are balanced, it's like three wires in a plug. Then a bigger light goes on. And then they can align with their creative being and create a bigger sense of self and alignment with bigger purpose. Okay. So it's relevant, yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. I actually love this conversation. I mean, uh, it's been an absolute honor having you on and talking about it. And, you know, I learned so much from it. Uh, but we do have to start wrapping up. And I, I, I get the feeling, like with many of these conversations, that we can probably speak for another hour or two. But And it's almost like we just touched the surface of it, which is kind of sad because it's definitely way over an hour. Uh, but is there anything, Debbie, that you thought I should have asked you uh, around hypnotherapy or, you know, uh, repatterning that I should have asked you? I think you've asked wonderful questions and I think they've been very helpful in the way to to bring the concepts through. So I think that's the most important things, but it's just important to know that you are right, we're in a time now where we can't just consciously, intellectually do talk talk therapy now because um, we have to revise the medical model now and start speeding up things and doing it in a different way. So anything where you're working on a deeper level will have a lot better impact, especially in the, in the way that we're in such an addictive society now. And by individuals working on themselves in this way, it can start to expand out to affect the consciousness so that we can now step into uh, more depth of alignment and balance and then recreate a world of a lot more harmony. Okay, yeah. And on that note, I, I, yeah, I mean, I'm really privileged that our paths crossed and I will definitely keep a, you know, look out for, you know, your new book. We will link to your existing site as well so that anyone can pick, you know, obviously find out more about you. But I'm really honored to have you on and talking about this and, and the work that you're doing, you know, it's like amazing, um, you know, that you're working with patients and, and clients around it. Um, thanks so much for doing this. And thanks so much for having me. It's been lovely. And thanks for, for doing what you do. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. As always, stay tuned and we'll speak to you in the next episode.